I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. If you haven't got a Bible in front of you, the, the, the reading will come up on the screen that is, that is behind me uh, as, as well. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Some years, um, he, he told the story about a group of sales, computer salesmen who went from Milwaukee, wherever that is, to Chicago, I've no idea how far apart they are, but they went by train, so it can't be that far. And they went there for a sales convention. And the meeting ran late, and these, these five uh, salesmen scurried out from, from the, uh, the, the office where they'd been meeting and ran towards the train station. And as they ran, they heard the whistle blow, that the train was about to leave the terminus. And so they raced through this, this, uh, this, this station, and they inadvertently kicked over a table. And on this table was a box of apples. And the apples, as you can imagine, just went everywhere across the floor. A 10-year-old boy was there selling the apples to pay for books for school and clothes for school as well. But with a sigh of relief, these five guys clambered onto the train and everything was good to go. But the last, the last one apparently had a twinge, a twinge of compassion for the boy. And he, he said to his, his friends, look, please call my wife when you get home and tell her I'm going to be late because I'm going to go back and see, and see that young lad. And so he returned to the station and later remarked that he was glad that he did. This 10-year-old boy was blind. The salesman saw that the apples were scattered all over, the, uh, all over the floor and he began to pick them up and saw that some of them were bruised. And so he, he took out a $20 note from his, his wallet and said, said to the boy, here, here's $20 for the apples that we damaged. I hope we didn't spoil your day. God bless you. And with that, he walked away. But the blind man called after him and said, are you Jesus? And that, when I heard that, it just, wow. That was an, an incredible, can you imagine being in that place and being taken for Jesus? The world that we're living in today, as we've, we've been praying about it, haven't we? And we're also aware as well, it's, it's, it's broken. It's struggling. And young people, especially, but people all over, are trying to find an alternative way to live, a way that will be fair for everybody and just for everybody. And we, we in the church, of course, want, want to say to them, well, well look, look to the church. Here's the answer. Look to the church. Look to Jesus. And, of course, that is, in a sense, true. They can look to Jesus, 
and they'll be encouraged, but they look to the church, and sometimes they're not always as encouraged as we might like them to be. And so they get put off by the second answer to that question. And we might be the same with that. Are, are, we, are we kind of put off from church and put off from the whole, the whole Christian thing? Brendan Manning again said at another time, um, a, a, a fairly famous quote, he said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips walk out the door and, in, and deny him by their lifestyle. Interesting. That's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable, he said. Tonight, as we begin this series looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we're going we're to be uh, looking at this from the, from the question, to, to actually see what it says about the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to, to actually live a Christian life? And there are some fabulous answers here in, in this sermon. What should the Christian life look like? If, if you've read this before, you'll know that it's incredibly challenging stuff. It's, it's, it isn't easy, to, isn't easy to preach it, but it's even harder to live it. Uh, um, but fortunately tonight, we haven't got to do some of the difficult stuff. So we're in, we're in a good place tonight for that. Um, but of course, what, what Jesus wants us to do here is to be able to, to take this teaching and apply it into our lives. If we could actually apply this stuff and live it out, this world would be a different place. This really would be the answer that people are looking for outside the church and maybe inside the church here this evening as well. It's all here in these three chapters of the Bible. But it is challenging to live it out. Jesus had been really busy up, up until the beginning of chapter 5. You, you can read, you can read the, the, the end of chapter 4 and find out that he'd been, he'd been uh, traveling around Galilee and heal, healing the sick, uh, casting out demons and doing all the stuff that he used to do. Um, drawing people from all over the area, from, from Jerusalem and from Syria. Syria is in the news a lot, isn't it, these days? But they were coming from Syria to hear and to see what Jesus was doing. And so now Jesus went up on the hillside and sat down, and he began to teach his disciples. It says there in, in verse 1 of our reading. Jesus wasn't preaching a sermon to convert people. He wasn't preaching an evangelistic sermon, as, as, as the, the, the technical term is for that. He was, actually, he was actually there teaching Christians what it means to be Christian. But I'm sure there were loads of people around who, in that crowd who were kind of listening in, because Jesus was teaching his disciples. But there were loads of people listening in to see what he had to say to these people. And I'm sure that lots of those people would have said, wow, this is amazing teaching. This guy is truly incredible. I need to change my life. I need to hand my life over to him. And I'm sure that people would have come to faith through uh, hearing these, these chapters uh, preached and shared by Jesus. So if you've read these chapters before and you found them a bit, a bit overwhelming and a bit demanding, don't, don't worry. Jesus doesn't expect everyone to live like this. He only expects those people who believe in him to live like this, all right? So that's not quite so comforting after all, perhaps, is it? But that's, that's what he expects from us tonight. So these, these verses, verses 3 to 10, which, sorry, verses 3 to, to 10 is, is the Beatitudes, it's called. Uh, and you may well have heard of that, and it may in your Bible have that as a little heading there. It's a bit of an unusual word. 
It's, it's a word that means supreme blessedness. So a beatitude is a supreme blessedness. I, I don't know where else it appears other than in, 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 this, in this chapter of the Bible. That There may be some uh, scholars of literature who could tell me that, but I, I have no idea what, anywhere else. It doesn't, it doesn't come up often in conversation, uh, certainly in, in my own life and my own experience. Jesus here is not talking about eight different types of people who are blessed. There are eight, there are eight beatitudes. But what he's talking about is eight, eight characteristics of, of Christian people, people that are blessed to follow him. Okay, so the idea isn't, isn't that we kind, of, we kind of pick out one of these thinking, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be pure in heart because then I'll see God. So I'm going to work really hard in my life at being pure in heart and I'll get to see God. Actually, no, uh, Jesus expects these, these characteristics to be the characteristics of all of us. Okay, so it's a bit like the, the, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. There are, there are eight, eight kind of flavors of the fruit, if you like, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. There, The expect, expectation is that we have all of them. And so these Beatitudes here are eight aspects, I believe, of Christian character. What it means to be a Christian. Heidi Baker, who's, who's a, a, an amazing uh, missionary working out in Mozambique, she says that these... Are, are a portrait and a description of Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus looks like, read these Beatitudes. And these, these will tell you Jesus' character, Jesus' personality there. So tonight, as, as, we, as we just read um, verses uh, 1 to 6, we're, we're going to spend our, the, rest of, the rest of this uh, um, uh, teaching time just looking at the first four of these, these Beatitudes which really describe the foundations of our relationship with God. The second four that we'll look at next week are, are looking more in terms of our relationships with other people. So the first four are very much about our relationship with God. So these are four characteristics of, of Christians, four characteristics of disciples, which are those people that follow Jesus. So the first of those are that disciples are poor in spirit. Do you feel like your spiritual life is going nowhere this evening? Does it all seem too hard? Do you look at others and say, wow, aren't they spiritual? And then look at yourself and think, I've got no chance. I am nowhere. I'm just so shallow. Oh. If, that's, if that's how you're feeling tonight, Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so if you're feeling rubbish and you're not, you're not, not made the grade, okay, and everyone else is better than you, you're in a really good place, is what Jesus is saying, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? We, we don't generally like to be poor. We always, you know, we're, we're encouraged, aren't we, to, to actually uh, uh, um, spend our lives in actually getting rich, or at least, at least being able to, to provide for ourselves everything that we need for a comfortable existence. And so much of, of what life is about is that. The poor people don't, don't, don't generally have choice about anything. They just have to respond to what's going on around them. They have to, they have to do what is needed to, to get food and so on. Our politicians tell us that we need to have choice don't we? That actually life is about being able to make choices. Poor people, people in poverty cannot generally make choices about anything. Poverty is unpleasant. 
And yet Jesus said, the poor in spirit, the poor in spirit are blessed. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that we've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all fallen short of God's standards for our lives. There is nothing that we're able to do to sort things out. The unpopular word for this, of course, is that we are sinners. A word we don't hear much out there anymore and a word we don't hear much in here anymore either. I don't mean just muttly, but in church in general. It's a word we don't like to talk about. We are spiritually bankrupt, is what the Bible says, and we can do nothing, absolutely nothing, to change our state. We can't lift ourselves up by our bootstraps, although I haven't got any bootstraps this evening on my boots, but uh, we can't do that. It does not work. There's nothing that we can do. What do we deserve? We deserve nothing but God's judgment and death. Wages of sin is death, says Romans chapter 6, verse 23. So, in other words, we're in a chronic spiritual state. We are bankrupt. Okay, our poverty, our spiritual poverty is such that we can do nothing to improve our state. We can't do anything to make things better. We can do nothing at all to earn God's favor. And that sounds awful, doesn't it? It's a bit, it's a bit depressing, isn't it, for a, for a nice sunny summer's evening. Surely we can do something. Surely there's something I can do. I can go to church on Sunday. I can go to church twice on Sunday. I can go to pray seven. I can do whatever else it is that's going on in the week. Surely that's going to make a difference there. Are we really as bad as all that? Well, actually, yes, we are, is what the Bible says. John Calvin, um, a, a great theologian from a long time ago, described people who are poor in spirit as someone who's reduced themselves to nothing and relies on the mercy of God. Someone who's reduced themselves to nothing and relies on the mercy of God. And he's absolutely right, actually, in that, I believe. And it's crucial that we get this. Jesus himself told a story um, in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 18, about a tax collector and a, and a, and a Pharisee. And, and they both went to the temple to pray. There was a Pharisee who was full of spiritual pride because he'd got degrees up the yin-yang. And, you know, and he was an amazing, amazing religious person. And then there's a the tax collector who came to the temple, aware that he was poor in spirit, and simply said to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, actually, of, of the two prayers that were answered, it was the, the guy who was the miserable sinner whose prayer was answered because God heard that prayer. The other guy, the other guy, his pride got in the way. And that's, that's the upside-down logic of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom doesn't work like the world seems to work. But hang on, the world doesn't work. So maybe that's why the world doesn't work, because it's not upside down. Jesus said, all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the only way we can ever be blessed in life is by being aware of our spiritual poverty. We've got to come to that place where we realize that we could do absolutely nothing, that we must depend on God. God is the only hope that we have. If we think we've got God and, God and something else, then we have nothing. We need to hope only in God alone. The issue is, if we don't know 
If we don't know how broken we are, if we don't know that we need mercy, we'll never ask for it. And if we'd ever ask it, we'll never receive it. So if you think you're doing well spiritually and you're depending on the things that you've learned about God and experienced about God, so we've been walking this journey maybe for for a few months or a few years and you think, yeah, I'm kind of getting it now. Yeah, I'm, I'm a good Christian now. If you think you can, le- le- you can lean on your own experiences, then be careful because all of us need God's mercy every single day. We all need God's mercy every single day. Not because God hates us. We've heard earlier on, doesn't he, that God loves us to bits. And, we, and we've heard about the, the things that God's done in Nicole's life. God loves us with a passion. God doesn't hate us. But if we don't, if we don't uh, come to that place of, of brokenness, if we're not aware of our poverty, we will not know that we need his mercy. So are you feeling spiritually poor tonight? If you are, rejoice, says Jesus, for the kingdom of heaven is yours. You can simply call out for God's mercy. The second thing, the second characteristic of disciples is related to this, this first one. Jesus says in, in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In other words, disciples mourn. It's a bit of a strange-sounding uh, uh, thing, thing to say, isn't it, really? You could paraphrase it, in a sense, as happy are those who are sad. Happy are those who are sad. Well, that, that doesn't really make a huge amount of sense either. Now, Jesus doesn't want us to be miserable the whole time. Okay, so you, you, it's, it's okay to laugh and joke. And, and, and do some fun stuff. But Jesus does want us to be in that place where, where we mourn. He isn't here referring to those who, who are in a place of, of mourning and bereavement over, over the loss of, of someone close or something special to them. It's, it's related, again, to our, to our spiritual state. To, to actually the state that we find ourselves in. As I say, it relates back to, to our, our, our uh, poverty, uh, our you know, poverty of spirit. I'm sure you're like me. There'll be things inside you that, 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 that actually, if you think about it, you'll probably be a bit ashamed of. Things that you may have done or not done. Things that you're embarrassed about in life. Things that we would love to have done differently. If only we had the gift of hindsight, we could do things differently. We, you know, um, it could be that there are people that we've hurt, there are lies that we've told, selfish motivations that have influenced our decisions in some way. Our mourning begins when we kind of face, that, face up to these things, face up to our inner self. And instead of denying these things and ignoring these things and just kind of moving on as if, as if they were just part of life and, hey, we've, you know, we've been through the school of hard knocks, so let's just move on. No, Jesus says, we've actually got to deal with it. We've got to face it. We can't deny it. Paul, I think we mentioned him earlier on, who wrote the book of Romans. Paul, became, Paul, before he became a Christian, was a persecutor of Christians. So he'd spend his, spend his life, his career was to go and round up Christians and get them thrown in prison, or even worse. So not, he wasn't really a very friendly chap to, to people like us. But when he became a Christian, things changed for him completely. He says in Romans 7 verse 24, What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. So he was pretty clear that he was mourning over stuff in the past. 
He was facing up to it and mourning it. And he wanted someone to do something about it. And of course, the person that can do something about it is God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he wrote about two types of mourning or sorrow. He says um, in verse 10 of chapter 7, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Okay, so there's the godly sorrow that brings repentance, that leads to salvation. The worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow, really, I think what he means there is that sorrow of regret and excuses. Yeah, I wish it hadn't happened. Yeah, it happened because of this, that, and the other, but, you know, I kind of wish it hadn't happened. But godly sorrow leads us to a place where we know that we can find comfort. It's a place of repentance, of turning again from that, of confessing it to God, and receiving God's forgiveness, that forgiveness that God made possible on the cross. I don't know if you've seen um, uh, videos of the Chinese church at all. I've, I've seen lots, lots over the years, but I, I can remember in, in a huge number of these in, in the underground church in China, if you see pictures of them or videos of them, you see loads of people in, crammed into these, these tight spaces, and they're often wailing and weeping. They're crying in these, in these services. And, and, you know, what's going on there is that they're, they're actually mourning over their sin. They're aware of their sin and the damage that it's caused to them and to other people. They're aware also of the damage that their sin did, in a sense, to Jesus, that it was their sin that put Jesus on the cross. That's something that we don't really do too much here in the West, whether it's because we're English and we don't like to do that sort of stuff, or what it is, or just God is working in a different way out there in China. Um, you know, but there is something very special, I think, and important that we can, we can get from that, that sin really is something very, very serious. And it's right that we mourn over our state. Obviously, we don't be crying the whole time, and I'm sure those people in China are not crying the whole time. We shouldn't be so, so quick to forget the damage that our sin has done and the immense cost that Jesus paid to bring us forgiveness and to set us free. Okay, so disciples are poor in spirit, disciples mourn, and now thirdly, disciples are meek. Meek, what does that mean? I know the words are similar, they, the, the, the two words, um, meekness and weakness, they rhyme, don't they? But that's, that's the only similarity they have. Meekness, again, is, is a word that we don't use very much uh, today in this, in this country or in English in generally. Um, but it's a word that really, really relates to brokenness. But brokenness in the way, apparently, that, that a horse has been broken. I'm not into horses at all. Um, uh, it's not, not really my thing. I've, I've, I've tried riding, but I, I, just, I just can't get to the place where I can trust an animal with my life as I sit on it. Hillary loves riding, but it's not for me. But, you know, uh, horses are broken, and what happens that when a horse is broken is that their kind of self-centered will is changed and, and, and it submits itself to the rider, at least in theory. That's the plan anyway. Okay. Um, and so that's, that's very much about what meekness is about. So it's about, it's about having our, our own will broken, not so that we become nothing and a nobody, but so that we submit our, our, our will to God's will so that we do what it is that God wants us to do with our lives. 
So meekness, somebody said, is strength under submission. It's a controlled desire to see another's interest advance ahead of one's own. So people like, uh, in the Bible, Abraham, if you, know, if you know your Old Testament, Abraham was meek when he let Lot choose which portion of land that he was going to have. You remember that Lot and Abraham were, were um, uh, uh, made, made, to, made to choose some land, and Lot, Lot decided to take the best land, the best land for, the, for, their, for, their, for their, their livestock that was going to cause um, Lot's family to flourish whereas Abraham was left with the, the rocky bits and so on. Okay, Abraham was meek in letting Lot choose that. Jesus himself, he was meek when in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, just, just before he was arrested and taken off um, to be crucified. When he, he went, he went and, he, and he prayed to God his Father, he said, let this cup be taken from me. In other words, I don't want to go through this. There's got to be some other way for this to happen. Please let there be another way. But then he said, let not my will be done, but your will be done. So if there's no other way, we'll do, we'll do it your way. And that's a great sign, uh, a great illustration of meekness there. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, a, uh, a speaker from, uh, from the last century, he, he put it like this. The person who's truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and other people can think of them as well as they do and treat them as well as they do. That's a really positive thing, isn't it? You know, to be amazed that God, God loves me as much as he does and other people love me as much as they do and they treat me well because of that. You know, it's a, it's a, it isn't about weakness. It's a real strength. It's, it's being in a place of contentment. And, and, that, and contentment is, is, is a real gift to us today. So many people don't have contentment. You know, whether, whether it's the material things of, of life, which it often is, isn't it? There was that, that kind of general discontent within people. But actually, God wants us to be content. Content with who we are in, in him. Content to know that actually he loves us with a never-ending love. That we're special to him. That he delights in us. You think, well, okay, we've just gone through what, these things about, more, um, about mourning and being brokenhearted and stuff like that. We know that we're rubbish. We know that we're, we're nothing, and yet God delights in us, even though we're nothing. And that's an important thing to, for us to grab hold of here. So meek people are those who wake up in the morning, instead of, instead of saying, good God, it's morning, but so they say, good morning, God, don't they? So there's a nice positive kind of spin to this. Actually, God is, God is everything, and God loves me, and everything is great because God loves me. Not because I'm great, but because God loves me. And with that kind of an attitude, anyone can, as Jesus says here, inherit the earth. Finally, for this evening, it's hard work, isn't it? It's hard work, this, this sermon. <laughs> These things, you think, wow, how could Jesus expect people to, to live like this? We'll, we'll, we'll go on and, and think about that some other time. But of course he does. The fourth thing to say is that disciples hunger and thirst for righteousness. And again, this is another massive area to look at. But just briefly for this evening, we're going to look at that. Again, we're thinking about poverty earlier on and how we don't like to be poor. We don't like to hunger or to thirst. I don't know if anyone likes to be hungry here. Anyone likes to thirst? No, it's generally not, isn't something that we, that we would choose to do. Um, but these are, these are words that we can use far too easily. 
You know, if, if you miss your tea or something, you can say, oh, I'm starving. You know, but of course we know that we're not really starving, don't we? You know, uh, and things. You know, I think there are probably very few of us here who really know what it is to hunger and to thirst, to be so desperate for food and for drink that that's the, the one thing or the two things that we actually focus on day by day. The one thing, the two things that we need in order to be able to continue to live. But Jesus says that we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, righteousness should be our passion daily, is very much what he's saying there. Now, righteousness is a big thing, and there's loads, loads, loads in that, but we, we, we won't go into detail this evening. But fundamentally, it's about being in a right relationship with God. Okay, so righteousness is about being in a right relationship with God. So if, if you're um, experiencing righteousness, you're in a good place with God. And that was very clearly Jesus' passion, because Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. So Jesus lived to do what God wanted. And every day he would check in with his father, even though we could say, well, he he must have known anyway. But he would check in daily in his prayer time there to find out what was on God's heart and to make sure that he applied that and lived that out in his own life. Those who live in that way, says Jesus, will be filled. If you've got a passion today for the best possible relationship with Jesus, then that passion will be filled, that you will actually receive what it is that you're looking for. Righteousness is, is, is far more than a right relationship. It actually affects the whole of our lives. One commentator says it's, it's um, living life in conformity to God's will. So it's, it, but, which, which again comes out of that relationship that we have with God. So fundamentally, it's about the relationship, but relationships, as we know, don't just affect the two people in the relationship, but they affect the rest of our life as well. So our relationship with God will, of course, have its outworking in, in our lives. But that's, that's the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, which, which you'll have over the, over the coming few months. How do we live this stuff out? What is it that we, that we need to do to, to, uh, to demonstrate this righteousness that we, we are living uh, Living, living in, in that relationship with him. Jesus' first disciples are, are, are great examples to us all. I love, I love to read about them because they, they mess up. This morning at Dartmouth, in the Naval College where I was, um, we were talking about Peter denying Jesus three times. You know, what, a, what, what an idiot. He was, he, was so, he was so sure he wasn't going to deny Jesus, and then he denies him three times. You know, and then it gets written down in the Bible. So we talk about him for, you know, for thousands of years afterwards. You know, he, he wasn't very clever when it came to that, was he? But, uh, you know, he messed up, and they, and they messed up so many times. They struggled to live life Jesus' way. It was not easy for them. They, they got it wrong. They sinned. They took their eyes off God and made their own decisions about stuff. They got worried. They got fearful. So all of us here tonight are in great company. Jesus was, was speaking to these, these first disciples, these, these 12 plus, plus all the others that were there on that day, telling them about the Beatitudes. He said, guys, if, if you can be like this, if this is, if this is your state, if this is your, your, your character, then it's, it's going to work out. And it, it took time. It took time. So... Just like they needed to come back to these Beatitudes, then we also need to come back to them again and again and again. Maybe you've heard 
hundred sermons on the Beatitudes. But that's okay, because we need to keep coming back to it again and again and again, because it's not something we just kind of get once and then, then forget about, because then we forget that we're poor in spirit. Then we forget that we need God's mercy. And then it all kind of unravels for us. So we need to keep coming back to get, to get, get back to that uncomfortable picture that we are sinners. Sinners who need God's grace. Sinners who need God's mercy. And if we've got that right view of who we are, then we can receive everything that God wants to give us. And God loves to give good gifts to his children. There's so much that he wants to give to all of us here. And it may be that some of the reasons why we don't receive the stuff that he wants to give us is because we're not aware of just how needy and how broken we are. God is here for us tonight. No matter what we've been up to, no matter how we feel tonight, he's here to bless you supremely. Remember the meaning of the word beatitude. So let's, let's allow him in, in, his, in his next few moments bef- before we finish just to, to move by his Holy Spirit in our hearts. Let him, to, let him remind us of our poverty in spirit. Let him help us to mourn over our sin, to make us meek and to submit to him and to hunger and thirst for a deeper relationship with him. If we come to those places, God will meet us. He's promised to do that. Amen.